Hi, Layla. Thank you so much for coming on with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be in your very famous newsletter. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> so we know each other, you know, I don't even, I guess for like a few years now, we've both edited and written for each other at different, well, you always at Wine Enthusiast, but I've we've worked together at Edible too. And we have organized along with Emily Stevenson, the Food Writers Workshop. Um, so, and also I made your wedding cake. So we know each other and uh, I just, I think that's important to have that disclosure <laughs> up front. Um, so I'm going to ask you to give me a little bit more background on your food writing career and how you ended up at Wine Enthusiast. But for, for starters, can you give us like a little bit of a bio for you? Sure. Um, so I grew up in the Boston area. Um, I got into journalism largely because my dad worked in media. Um, both my parents are writers. I, you know, it was, it was predetermined that I'd be a writer in some sense, but, um, I used to, my dad worked in, um, B2B publishing my whole life. Um, he retired a couple of years ago, but, um, he was in IT for most of that time. And, and I believe plastics before IT was a thing. Um, so I used to go to his office and I'd kind of, you know, see how it worked. And I think, it always really appealed to me that not only was there the writing side, but there was this design side and there was this kind of organizational administrative managerial side that from a young age spoke deeply to my soul. Um, so I uh, went to journalism school at UConn and it was a very newspaper oriented, very kind of like, you're all going to get jobs at your local newspapers and cover town hall meetings kind of program, which is really a uh, helpful background. And I did, in fact, get a job at a local newspaper right out of college, copy editing. Um, and from there, moved to New York to work in magazines. I, I loved the format of magazines and, and, you know, just kind of I think I thought it was going to be very glamorous and very cool, like a lot of people do, I'm sure. Um, so I got a job at a publishing company that does all in-flight magazines. And I was there for about four years and I kind of worked my way up. And um, around 2011, I started getting very into food personally and decided that I wanted to get into food writing at a time when a lot of people <laughs> were deciding they wanted to get into food writing. Um, so I quit that job. I went freelance. I was freelance for a little under a year. I very quickly realized that it was not for me, that I still like doing all of those other tasks of being an editor that I am not great at, nor do I particularly enjoy marketing myself. Um, so I got a job at Fine Cooking, um, which was really kind of like a crash course in cooking technique as well. And I was there again for about four years. Um, and they started having a lot of layoffs, not fine cooking specifically, but the publisher. Um, and with that came this um, extreme caution in what we were publishing that everything had to kind of appeal to our core readership and and be fairly uh, conservative. Um, so that's when I started looking for other jobs. And, you know, when Wine Enthusiast came along, um, it was, I've always been interested in wine, but it really was sort of a fit in that I would get to keep learning about this kind of new to me niche. 
and they wanted someone who knew how to make print magazines. And, you know, it's a very lifestyle oriented magazine. So the fact that I had this food and travel background really kind of worked for them. Um, so I've been there now about four years. <laughs> um, and obviously I've learned a lot about wine. Um, sorry, that's my dog. Um, but that's, that's how I ended up there. Awesome. Um, so can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yes, I can. Uh, so I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, which is among other things where Harvard University is, but more locally, it has a reputation as the People's Republic of Cambridge. It's a place that is increasingly very wealthy, um, but also very concerned with, you know, diversity and, and political correctness and these sorts of ideas. Um, it's, I would, I would equate it to like Park Slope. Um, and what did I grow up eating? So I have a sister who's five years older than me. And when I was maybe seven or eight and she was 12 or 13, she became vegetarian. Uh, so I decided I was vegetarian now too. Um, so we ate a lot of Morningstar Farms products. Um, but I also, you know, my, my, neither of my parents was a great cook, um, but they were very dedicated to cooking our meals and, you know, and cooking whole foods. And um, we, we shopped at a food co-op and things like that. Um, I wasn't allowed any cereal with marshmallows in it. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of like, meals in my house. There were a lot of stir fries, um, a lot of pasta, which was, you know, mostly initiated by myself and my sister. Um, it was the nineties. It was, so it was a lot of margarine and skim milk and low fat and reduced calorie stuff, which looking back runs totally counter to this, like, we're going to eat vegetables and cook food kind of ethos that we generally had in my house. But I guess you know, I guess that's just what people did then. Um, and so I really didn't learn a whole lot about cooking until I was an adult. Um, you know, my, my parents taught me to make stir fry. My dad taught me to make an omelet and scrambled eggs. Um, but it was really pretty bare bones. And how do you think that affected learning how to cook later? Like, did it um, feel sort? Did it feel different? Uh, did it feel kind of like separate from the way you grew up? Was it? Did it feel like this big change? Yeah. So, I mean, I think before I learned how to cook, I I just kind of lumped it in with all domestic labor, which to some extent was something I was always interested in. Like I, you know, I would like organize the pantry on a Saturday afternoon as a child for fun and things like that. Um, but I, I did have this kind of complicated relationship when I was learning to cook in my twenties as someone who was dating and cooking for boyfriends of like, well, is this what my role is going to be? But in general, honestly, I think it was really um, kind of liberating. Like I didn't, I didn't have any rules for myself about what I could and couldn't cook. Um, it was really just this kind of uncharted territory um, and, and completely unstructured in a way that not a lot of things in my life have been. Um, and I also, at the time I was 
learning to cook and mostly teaching myself was extremely broke. Um, Mm -hmm. So it also felt like finally I'm learning how to be self-sufficient and finally I'm, you know, learning this really valuable skill and I can feed myself and other people really affordably and it tastes okay. Um, So it was, I, 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 there weren't really many negatives to learning to cook for me. And so what were the resources you used when, when you were trying to teach yourself how to cook? Um, the internet (laughs) was a big one. Um, you know, I, again, growing up, we really didn't even have many cookbooks. We had the settlement cookbook, which I've written about, um, and we had the joy of cooking and we had moosewood. So, you know, I, but I was working in media already when I was learning to cook. So I'd get free cookbooks. I'd look at those. Um, I was at the time like reading and, and reporting a lot about restaurants. So I'd get, you know, chef recipes and be looking at what they were doing and kind of figure out how to dumb that down for myself. But honestly, a lot of it was pure instinct. And then right before I started working at Fine Cooking, I took uh, a series of, of classic technique classes at um, at ICE, the Institute for Culinary Education. And then, you know, working at Fine Cooking where we had a test kitchen and it's a teaching magazine, I learned a lot, a lot, a lot on the job. Right, right, right. And so when you started at Wine Enthusiast, what was your wine background like? So, you know, at Fine Cooking, we would often recommend wine pairings with the recipes, and I worked on those. Um, I, You know, I worked with a writer who, who provided them, but um, we, we'd also get wine samples, and, you know, we were pretty good about distributing them evenly, and everyone would write tasting notes, and so I, I kind of knew a little bit about how to taste wine. Um, and I think my, you know, for my 21st or my 22nd birthday, my dad had taken me out and bought me a case of wine. And it was this very sort of like, well, Pinot Grigio is a lighter white and you want it from Italy. And Chardonnay is a heavier white and you want it from California. And um, so I, I had some of that in my head, but I, more than that, I was just a really adventurous drinker. Um you know, if I was in a restaurant and they had a wine I'd never heard of before, I'd say, can you tell me about this wine? I'd like to try it. So, um, and I, I traveled a fair amount for work more so when I was doing travel stuff than at fine cooking, but you know, I, I'd been to Italy and I'd been to France. And so I had tried wine in those places. So I, and, and been to wineries. And so I knew a little bit about how wine was made. Um, but I, I didn't know a whole lot. I I had a good sense of if I tasted a wine, I could pair it well. Um, and that's still probably my, my greatest strength in the wine world. But um, but obviously I've, you know, again, kind of picked up on the job because I've had to a lot of these distinctions about grapes and regions and blends and wine structure, which is something you don't hear a ton about until you're in the wine world, but it's kind of the most important thing. Um so yeah. Awesome. And so yeah, what are what are the ways in which people learn about wine? Like I mean in this in, you're obviously at a magazine so it's a little bit structured, but like when someone starts out 
wanting to learn about wine, what is, what are the kinds of things you recommend they do? What are the, I mean, I don't know if there's necessarily really good books on it that, that can start someone off, but yeah, what's, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is honestly, just find a store in your area where people are where the staff are friendly and where they have tastings a lot. Most wine shops have tastings pretty frequently, often because of their, from their distributors. Um, They'll just set up a little table and pour wine, but they'll talk to you about where the grapes come from and how the wine is made and it's free and you get a little free taste of wine. Um, And, you know, and then you can go to the friendly professional who works in the store and say, I really like this wine. And ideally you'll say, I really like this wine because, and they'll be able to kind of direct you toward other wines that you might like for the same reasons. Um, but I, I think the two most important things are to taste a lot and to figure out what it is that you like and how to express that. Um, And I I only recommend doing in-store tastings for that because it's free and, you know, wine can get pricey. Um, (laughs) But if you if you have access to a lot of wine some other way, whether it's you're in a position where you can buy a lot of wine without knowing if you'll like it or if you work in a restaurant and they'll let you taste samples or anything like that, just taste as widely as you can and, and learn how to put into words what you like and then find people more knowledgeable than you who are going to be nice about it and say, I had this one and I really liked it because I liked these characteristics and, and, you know, kind of impose on them to, uh, to recommend other things to you. I mean, obviously magazines are very helpful because we give you that context. Wine enthusiasts specifically will give you that context about, you know, how a certain wine is going to pair with food or we can, story is very important in wine because it can help you form an emotional connection to the to what you're drinking um and we certainly give you that um and it's just kind of a way to get comfortable with the language of it which is also pretty huge because it's not like the language of food and it's not even like the language of beer or spirits or cocktails um so you know magazines are a good way to just kind of learn the lingo but um the most important thing is just to taste everything you can taste right and so the the idea of snobbery maybe is so unfairly present with how people perceive wine and how do you deal with that or how do you like process that like and you know even specifically in an editorial role how do you kind of chip away at the idea that caring about wine is an elitist, snobbish uh, concept? Um, So, you know, as someone who who works in the wine industry, obviously I have people from outside the industry ask me all the time, like, is this wine good? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's, it's important to note that Yes, there are technical characteristics that can make some wines better than others. But I, but what we do at Wine Enthusiasts and what I do personally in my day-to-day life is, is kind of say, well, it doesn't matter if it's good if you like it. Um, I think in food and wine both, we have this idea that if I like something, that means it's good. And if I don't like something, that means it's bad. And there are just a lot of ways to kind of 
measure good versus bad that have nothing to do with personal preference. So, you know, I, I think it's a huge, a huge way to kind of work around any perceived snobbery is to get over the idea of good pretty quickly. Um, you know, I haven't encountered a whole lot of snobbery from people actually in the industry. Um, I think because wine can be very expensive, like that's true. There's no, there's no talking around that. A lot of wine is very expensive and, and a lot of wine is medium expensive. Um, so to have it as a hobby and to have it as something that you drink widely and passionately and collect costs money. Um, I haven't encountered a whole lot of people who, you know, say, oh, what do you mean you've never tried Domaine Romani Conti, which is a very prestigious and expensive and rare wine. I've not had that experience. I've had a lot more experience with um, people who who know a lot and want to make sure everyone knows that they know a lot. <laughs> and so, you know, if you say, oh, I tried this wine and I like it, they'll say, well, what vintage was it? And which and, you know, was it was it a single vineyard? Which single vineyard was it? Because I had this one. Um, and and so I think if you recognize that it's enthusiasm and and maybe a little bit of kind of know it allness rather than snobbishness, you just kind of have to you just have to tell yourself that you just have to say this person's excited and they want to show me how much they know. And it has nothing to do with where I'm at. Um which, which can be a tough pill to swallow, but it's also easy enough to just say, I don't know, you know, <laughs> just say, I'm, I'm not that deep into it. Tell me why you like the thing that you liked, because that's what those people are looking for, um, is, is an, a, an end to tell you all the things that they loved about a wine. Um, it's, there, there are the people who are collectors for the sake of collecting and want the rarest and the fanciest and the most expensive. I don't come across them much at all. They tend to travel in different circles than people who are just really into wine. Um, so I don't have any <laughs> words of wisdom there. And, you know, and working at a wine magazine, like they are also our readers and we speak to them. And like, I, I guess I just kind of feel like, well, that's cool if that's what you want to do. You know, I mean, there are certainly worse ways to spend your money. And a lot of wines that are very rare and are very expensive, more so than with other consumer goods, like there's good reason for it. Um, you know, it's it's because they are grown and produced in, in ways that lead to scarcity, but also take a lot of skill. Um, and, you know... I, most expensive wine is also really sustainable because they want to keep making expensive wine forever. And it's, you know, at heart, it's an agricultural pro uh, product. So you can't do that if you destroy where it's grown. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's just kind of maintaining a perspective that if someone tries to tell you that they know more than you, it's more likely that they just are excited about what they want to talk about. <laughs> um, right. It has and nothing to do with you. I think that's such that is kind of a general misconception about food and beverage people is that their enthusiasm is snobbery instead of just like being yeah being excited like when you when you've seen an entire process many times and enjoyed 
something widely, it's it's often that you're just you just want to talk about it. You just want to share. Um, but uh, things about food and, and drink are so personal with everybody that it often gets, you know, it, it feels confrontational sometimes to just be enthusiastic. Yeah. Which is interesting. <laughs> um, but another <laughs> Another thing that's been like super interesting to watch in the wine world is how much people are talking about natural wine, especially like in kind of in publications that have nothing to do with food or beverage. Like there's been this generalist obsession with natural wine, um, which is a conversation that has been simplified and sort of universalized around like this perfect millennial caricature of like an urban person you know yeah. who has money to spend so and just, I goes like pet that all the time um and so like what have you encountered around natural wine that that is different from conventional wine like how are these worlds different how are they colliding what are the mistakes people are making to, in the way they talk about natural wine So I want to like state very clearly first up front before I get into it that natural wine is a pretty broad term. Um, right. Loosely speaking, it means kind of minimal human intervention in the winemaking process. It often also means, you know, from grapes that are organic and or biodynamically grown. Um, there's a lot of controversy over whether or not uh, sulfur is added preserve as, as a preservative agent. Um so it's, you know, minimal to no sulfur. Um, there's some back and forth over whether it should be filtered or fined, which means kind of just clearing out the sediment. Um, and so oftentimes you'll see natural wine that's cloudy. Um, and and usually it is wild fermented. So it's using ambient yeast in the air as opposed to commercially purchased yeast. So that's in, in a nutshell, what natural wine is when you hear people talking about that. It will still give you a hangover. It is often made, though, in lower alcohol styles. That's called the glue-glue style. It's a French word that's just like glug-glug, easy to drink. So it's lower alcohol, lighter in body. Um, so, I, you know, on the one hand, I think it's really exciting that natural wine is something that's speaking to so many people and people who might not otherwise care a whole lot about wine now are are learning words like terroir and they're learning about how wine is made and how it's grown and where and the people doing it. Um, I think it is kind of, you know, I talked a little bit about, about structure and about these kind of characteristics that wine should have to be classified as good. Um, and, and to some extent it is challenging that a little bit. Like I'm very interested in kind of the palettes of people who only ever drink natural wine. Um, so structure in wine is, is uh, acid, tannin, alcohol, body, um, complexity, finish. These are, these don't have a ton to do with kind of like what you think of when you think of wine tasting of, you know, notes of cherry and pine trees or whatever. Um, they are, they are structural elements and, you know, in a good wine, or in any wine, you're kind of looking at how those things interplay to figure out if the wine was well-made. Um, and so in natural wine, the rules are different uh, because the whole point is to let the grape express as as it wants to. Um, so if, you know, if 
a grape is super tannic and, and doesn't have a whole lot else going on, but that's the grape this winemaker chose and that's how it's expressing its itself, then that's considered a good wine in the natural wine world, not so much in the outside world um, or at the outside wine world. Um, so I, I think that's where a lot of the conflict comes from is just these varying standards of what good is. Um, but I, I think also on both sides, there's, there's this idea of purity of, I know the right way to drink wine and, and I know the qualities that matter. Um, and that's where a lot of the conflict comes from. Um, so, I mean, I'm someone who, who drinks both. I drink, you know, traditional wines and natural wines. I like both for different reasons. Um, and I think there are probably more people like me than you really see or hear about. It's, it's, I think probably presented as more of a dichotomy than it really is because I think again most people who are in the wine world and love wine want to taste as many things as they can and generally enjoy drinking wine no for sure I mean I wish I could drink more natural wine here but it you know it's not here <laughs> um, so um <laughs> So in the same kind of way that natural wine has opened up new people to the wine world, I'm going to try a segue here that might not work, but um, how has, you know, has food media, do you think, opened up to new voices? Like where, where are the new voices to be found? How are you trying to enable new voices as an editor and you know, how has the focus on big personalities in food media been kind of a hindrance to the conversation about food uh, in the United States? Well, so, I mean, I, I think wine media is growing and changing, you know, mm -hmm. seven to eight years behind food media. So, we really have an opportunity to look at what worked and what didn't work in food media. Um, and, and obviously the two are very related and there's a lot of overlap, including me. Um, so, I mean, I, I also think it's important to remember that like there are a ton of people making food media who aren't the big personalities. And, you know, and I get a little defensive about this because I'm one of them and have been my whole career. Um, but like, you know, I, when you read a recipe that you find on online or in a magazine, chances are the person who developed it, the name on it is not one of these big personalities. If it's just like a, you know, weeknight dinner recipe. Um, and it's fairly similar for wine. There are certainly kind of big names in the wine media world. Um, a lot of them are people who have been around for a while so you know they're they're slower to adopt or just kind of not as innately into the natural wine scene um or or that's been their whole career and they don't they don't understand that they're not a fringe anymore but um i there's certainly less of the kind of big dominant personalities in wine media um and you know i I think it's a lot easier for me at least to find people who, who write about wine and know about wine and oftentimes are coming from 
a wine sales or a wine retail or wine marketing background and want to move over to the editorial side and and uh, and say, okay, well, I work in you know one of the larger <laughs> wine magazines. Let's let's figure something out. Um, and as an editor, it's really that simple to kind of bring new voices in is to, you know, be available to people who are interested and to put yourself out there as someone who's available to people and, you know, to be active on smaller outlets and on social media and look for the people who have interesting things to say and then reach out to them and say, I want to pay you to write about this. Like people are like to hear that people are excited about that. Um, And it's probably easier to do again because there's not this pressure to work with the biggest names in, in wine writing because they're, you know, because we want to bring in new voices anyway to keep expanding and growing. Um, in terms of what food media can do, I mean, I, I get it as an editor that it's it's really hard when you found people who know how you work and do the thing that you need them to do and you know, and your bosses and the world at large is happy with the results. It's really hard to say, okay, well, that was working, but I want to push myself and my readers. And so I'm going to find someone else. Um, But once you do it, you realize it's actually not that hard. It's just kind of getting over that hurdle of like, all right, I'm going to take a risk on this story. And I'm going to work with a writer who doesn't have as many clips and you know, doesn't have as many social media followers, but is clearly smart as hell and has really interesting things to say. So, you know, I'm going to do my job essentially. And if their copy comes in rough, because I haven't worked with them before, or if it takes a little bit more upfront work, kind of giving them a more detailed assignment and explaining how I work, then that's what I'm going to do. Um, I will say that working in print makes that easier because we always have more time on everything. Um, But I I really think that, that that's just kind of the key is just editors saying, I'm going to make the effort to do the research and put in the time on the front end and the back end to work with a writer who's new to this and see what they have to say and then do that again and again and again. Right. That, that is a lot more work. Than, than just using the same tool <laughs> over time. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, for you, are cooking and drinking, in your case, political acts in any ways? Yeah. I, yeah, anytime you're making choices about spending money and in food and in wine, it's such a long supply chain and it's such a big ripple effect of how you spend your money and, you know, who's hurt by it and who's helped by it um that before you even you know pick up your tools to to cook or pour your glass of wine um it's already it's already a political decision um and then and then while you are eating or drinking you have this further choice to to reflect on it and to you know to tell people about it and good or bad and um and to decide if you're going to do it differently next time or if you're happy and want to keep supporting these people you're supporting. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today, Layla. Thank you. This is fun. It's good to hear your voice. All right.